Today on Ag News Daily. It is a little bit different. You know, bison was never domesticated as a species, so it's essentially still a wild animal. So processing can be a little bit different than, than your average beef cattle, for example. Uh, so, you know, we, we still take them down with a rifle uh, in a kill box, typically at a slaughter plant. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined today by Ashton Carr. And Ashton, it certainly is a Friday indeed. We've got lots of good things to talk about on the podcast, but before we get to that, I just wanted to remind folks, today we are brought to you by the National Pork Board, where you can request your free on-farm sustainability report at porkcheckoff.org sustainability. Now, Ashton, I just wrapped up a very fun, very entertaining lunch with some of the farm for profit guys. So I've just had lots of uh, interesting conversations today already. I think that that's one thing that I dislike about you and I being so far away from each other is that I don't get to attend things with you. Maybe well, we do virtual lunches. We could do that. We could do virtual <laughs> lunches. You can just sit it, sit and stare at me while I eat my lunch. That'd be great. Yeah. On second thought, I don't know how enjoyable that would be. So maybe we backtrack on that idea. We could do a virtual happy hour or like they have games now that you can play virtually with your friends who don't have to obviously be in the same place and you Zoom with them. We did, we did that over COVID when everything was locked down. We did that with some friends and that's a pretty good time. So maybe we should organize something like that. Perhaps we should, Delaney. But in the meantime, we've got quite a bit of news to catch up on here. And I'm going to kick things off with a follow-up to your story that you reported on yesterday about the potential strike going on at the cargo plant in Alberta. And while it seems to be that we have avoided a labor strike at this plant, there could potentially still be a shutdown, and this could produce significant disruptions to even the U.S. cattle market. We saw earlier this year that workers at an Olimau hog processing facility in Canada went on strike, and it took several months for that dispute to be resolved. And that labor strike caused waves in the Canadian pork market, but it also affected the U.S. hog market. Canadian hogs were shipped to the U.S., resulting in wider regional price spreads. And we could potentially see something happen like this in the cattle market. So I'm interested to see if over the weekend we do get the news that the agreement has been voted into place by these workers. But if not, I think this is a potential conversation that we could still be having on Market Monday, Delaney. Yeah, it certainly sounds that way, Ashton. And like we said before, you know, we're watching to see really if other companies take a play out of John Deere's playbook. And I think this will be our first glimpse into whether or not that happens. Absolutely. It is, Delaney. But why don't you go ahead and share a piece of news with us today? What have you been watching? Well, Ashton, I guess it's not so much. Well, it is news, but kind of also just ongoing commentary that we continue to follow. And that's what's going on with African swine fever. Because last week, the uh, Farm Journal's Pork put out some interesting commentary about how African swine fever has really continued to explode and just hasn't been in the media quite as often. But we've seen some fresh cases of African swine fever reported in Vietnam as well as Germany. And in total, government officials said that in Vietnam in particular, 
This most recent outbreak has forced the culling of about 230,000 hogs, which is three times the number of hogs culled in 2020. So Vietnam is definitely having a hard time getting this thing under wraps. But as you look at the outbreak itself, I thought these numbers were pretty interesting because I hadn't heard updated numbers in a while. And they said the outbreak is now spread to about 2,200 areas in 57 countries, 63 cities and provinces so that it is still rearing its ugly head even though we maybe don't hear about it quite as frequently in the news you know i'm glad that you brought up african swine fever delaney because i read a story earlier today about a research project that's funded by national pork board taking place at kansas state university and this research project is 513 thousand dollars. So they're doing a lot of research focusing on survival rates after a farm has been hit with African Mm -hmm. swine fever. And I think it's pretty interesting because they're talking about contamination points like pens, manure secretions, and ways that the virus can be eliminated from those contamination points. So I think that it's interesting that they're taking this approach rather than researching vaccinations and really how we can come out stronger if it were to hit U.S. shores. So I'm going to be keeping my eyes out on this research project and really how the African swine fever story is continuing to develop because it's not something I think that we're going to see go away anytime soon just because of the research that's taking place, vaccinations, and of course, the continued spread of the disease. Yeah, absolutely, Ashton. And you know, While we're talking about hogs, I just want to remind folks that today's podcast is, of course, being sponsored by the National Pork Board. And as you think about things like the research behind what is making your farm profitable, you're in luck if you need some help with this because National Pork Board has put together tools to help farmers measure things and understand what sustainability is doing for the people, pigs and the planet And doing what's right must be shared with today's tech-savvy consumer to help grow public trust in pig farming while protecting your freedom to operate, to measure and document your farm's sustainability efforts. National Pork Board encourages you to create a free on-farm sustainability report, which can help increase production efficiencies and improve your bottom lines. You can request your free report today at porkcheckoff.org slash sustainability. But Ashton, as we talk about producers' bottom line and improving efficiencies, we're going to see the highest U.S. farm income in eight years this year, but there are some likely headwinds here in 2022. Despite disruptions of the pandemic, We're going to see a pretty broad stroke of success here, highest since 2013, thanks to really strong commodity prices this year, according to the USDA. And corn, wheat, and soybean receipts, for example, they're going to be 36% larger than they were last year. Broiler chicken receipts were forecasted to be up 49% from 2020. And overall, net farm income is going to equivalent to about $116.3 billion this year, which would be almost twice the total of 2016, which is crazy to think. But as I mentioned there, there are some analysts and folks in the USDA that are expecting 2022 to see a little bit of a pullback as prices may soften somewhat. So 
definitely going to be an interesting year this year to see if we can stay on this up train, up cycle in commodity prices, or if we do, in fact, see things soften up a little bit in 2022. So going to be kind of a pivotal year this year, that's for sure. Well, Delaney, my next story comes from the Specialty Soya and Grains Alliance. And I think that it's an interesting one because I think that we're seeing a couple of different groups really change the way that they are connecting with their consumers because the Alliance has launched U.S. Identity Preserved, which is a designation signifying a premium crop with a verifiable origin. Eric Winberg, who is the executive director for the Alliance, said that what they've done is created an education system where U.S. companies will now have an ally in asking the foreign buyer to pay more for a higher quality product. He says that the program will allow customers to specifically order what they need for the future so that IP producers can grow it today. He was quoted as saying, consumers are in charge. They're the ones running the show. That's why we talk farm to fork. Identity Preserved is the communication system between that food manufacturer all the way back to the grower. Winberg also said that farmers should consider these specialty forward contracts because there's a lot of unmet demand in the identity preserved market. So like I said, I thought it was interesting because I think we're seeing more companies direct their marketing more to the consumer rather than to maybe the manufacturer. I, I don't I don't know what to make of it all, but I, I thought it was pretty interesting nonetheless, Delaney. Well, another thing that's interesting, Ashton, or not so interesting, depending on how you look at it. Speaking of consumers, consumers are demanding beef. It doesn't matter if we do see plant-based protein. According to Rabobank's quarter four report on the U.S. beef market, demand is set to increase Production is going to likely decrease, and unfortunately, that's going to push beef prices higher throughout 2021 into 2022. So we certainly do see, of course, you know, these alternative proteins coming to the forefront. But at the end of the day, we're still seeing a lot of demand for animal protein and good and bad because, of course, we love seeing that demand, but it does push up the cost of that good in the grocery store. Well, Delaney, before I get into my last piece of news here, of course, we want to shout out NPB once again for being today's sponsor. And as a pig farmer, you know that sustainability is doing what's right for people, pigs, and the planet. However, doing what's right must be shared with today's savvy consumers to help grow public trust in pig farming while protecting your freedom to operate. To measure and document your farm's sustainability efforts, National Pork Board encourages you to create a free on-farm sustainability report. These reports can help increase production efficiencies and improve your bottom line. Request your free report at forkcheckoff.org slash sustainability. With that, Delaney, I'm going to hop into this piece of news here because it definitely put me into the happy hour mood like we talked about earlier. So today might be the day that we have to do that because this story is certainly interesting as it's talking about wine and vodka. Oh, of course, you know, California is plagued by wildfires pretty much every year. And 2020, with it being such a crazy year, was still a part of that story. And Nicholas Quill 
feared the worst for his grapes in 2020 as they were affected by wildfires because he saw a similar story back in 2017 as he rushed to harvest his grapes into Merlot and Malblanc wines at Pine Ridge Vineyards in Napa County. But he was too late. The aromas were ashtray-like. And so he decided to team up with some folks and created Smoke Point Vodka as the result because they took these smoky ash grapes and turned them into vodka, which I thought was pretty interesting because I had never heard of vodka being made from grapes. They were smoke tainted and apparently it came out as a quote, gorgeous vodka that is very easy to sip. And all the proceeds from the sales of Smoke Point Vodka go to the California Fire Foundation. So I thought this was a feel good story. Definitely wanted to put you in the mood for Friday afternoon happy hour. That's true. It certainly does. And I love hearing stories like that of producers who either were looking for ways to diversify and ended up doing things like this, like producing, you know, wheat, uh, I almost said wheat, but I meant to say whiskey or vodka or wine or whatever. It's it's just interesting, I think, to hear about some of the non-traditional crops and or even some of the traditional crops that people just think, hey, let's try something out of the box here because this is what consumers are demanding. So really interesting stuff. I'm glad you shared that for us today on this Friday episode, Ashton. But I do not really have any other news today to talk about other than the markets. So what do you say we hop in here and look at how they finished on the day? Let's get to it, Delaney. Well, they actually finished the week on a high note, finally. And I'm pulling up a chart here really quick to see if they were able to claw back from the losses that they gave up earlier this week. And they pretty much were in the corn market as well as soybeans. March corn today closed up seven and a quarter cents, closing at 584. The Dees ending the week up three and a quarter cent, closing at 552 and a quarter. In the soybean pits today, the January contract up 23 cents to close at 1267 and a quarter. And they did, in fact, claw their way back from the early sell off we saw on Monday and Tuesday due to the COVID fear. Seems like that has at least temporarily been traded out of the market. The March contract up 21 and a quarter cent, closing at 1271 and a quarter. In the wheat pits today, the December contract shed 12 cents, closing at 794 and a half. The March down 11 and a quarter cent, closing at 803 and three quarters. Taking a look at livestock today, we saw weakness to end this Friday afternoon as the February live cattle contract shed 62 and a half cents, closing at 138.95. The April down 45 cents, closing the day at 142.15. In the feeder cattle markets today, the January contract losing $1.65 to close at one sixty four twelve and a half. The March shedding $1.22 and a half today, closing at one sixty seven ten. And in lean hogs, that weakness continued as the February contract shed fifty cents, closing at eighty one fifty. The April down forty five, ending the week at eighty five eighty seven and a half. Lastly, wrapping things up here with the class three dairy milk futures. The January contract up 45 cents today to close at 1874. The February up 33 cents, closing at 1895. Ashton, without further ado, tell us who we're talking to for today's hashtag Friday interview. Well, we're keeping up with the Friday spirit and talking about bison with Jim Matheson. Today, I am joined by Jim Matheson of the National Bison Association. Thank you so much, Jim, for talking to me today. Thank you for having me, Ashton. 
So before we get started talking about bison and really all the good things that you guys are doing, new, exciting, all that fun stuff, let's learn a little bit more about you and really how you got to be involved with bison. Sure. You know, as is the case with a lot of folks in bison, kind of fell into it. <laughs> so I have a background in organic vegetable production, actually, and did a lot of work in education and outreach uh, and advocacy. And this job came up about 17 years ago, um, and it was a great fit. You know, bison falls into the natural food channel very nicely. Uh, we've got a lot of similarities to the organic market. Uh, so it's it's been a wonderful experience. Um, I've got a wonderful community of members and producers that I've gotten to know over the fifth, past 17 years. And we are a, a relatively small group of producers in American agriculture. So you've been there for 17 years, been involved in bison for almost 20 years. I'm sure that you have seen a lot of changes over the years. And you and I were just talking here before I started recording about how bison's really growing in popularity. So what are some of these changes that have really been going on in that sector of the industry? Absolutely. You know, the past 20 years, we've really brought bison to the mainstream market in the United States. You know, the bison marketplace is largely domestic. We do a little bit of exporting, but we're fortunate that we can really focus on the United States as our primary market for our product. So, you know, we've really matured as an industry, I'd say, over the past 15 years. We've had more sophisticated processing plants developed, bison-specific processing plants, and more plants in general have opened up. And we've really focused on marketing the product, like I said, to the Natural Food Channel uh, and promoting it for what it is, a very natural, clean, sustainable product. So you mentioned those bison-specific packing operations. So what is that like? How is that different from others? I mean, I assume it's pretty similar for just, you know, processing a, a beef cattle carcass. But, you know, how does that kind of differentiate itself from other operations? It is a little bit different. You know, bison was never domesticated as a species, so it's essentially still a wild animal. So processing can be a little bit different than, than your average beef cattle, for example. Uh, so, you know, we, we still take them down with a rifle uh, in a kill box, typically at a slaughter plant. And so the process is a little bit, we can't knock them like they do with beef and pork, et cetera. We do use a rifle still. So it is a little bit different. And the infrastructure needs to be a little bit larger to accommodate their larger body size and, and things like that. So, Jim, before we started talking here and recording, you mentioned how, you know, you're trying to bring bison more commercially versus, you know, seeing the beef in the counter and having that open up to go beyond the bison burger and, you know, opening it up to different middle cuts and steaks and everything like that. Can you kind of, like, give us a goal on that with trying to open that up to more commercially for Americans? Absolutely. Good question, Dawson. Uh, you know... By now, most everyone has had a buffalo burger, at least. So the ubiquitous buffalo burger, uh, we're trying to just promote the rest of the animal. So in general, we try to utilize the whole animal. Uh, we use the offal for pet food products, for example. The hides have a market for them. The skulls have a market for them. Uh, obviously, the meat has a great market for itself there. Um, but, you know, we want to move beyond just buffalo burgers because there's essentially the same cuts from a beef animal that are available on a bison. And to have just the burgers, like just eating a hamburger and never trying a steak or a roast or short ribs or anything like that, and when done right, and cooking is a big part of the puzzle, bison is extremely tender, extremely delicious, and extremely nutritious. So, you know, you could have steaks that you can cut with a fork. And when you braise the ribs and the brisket, it just falls apart in your mouth, and it's a wonderful eating experience. 
so you try and use, you know, the whole animal, essentially, and I'm going to use the buzzword here. Sounds pretty sustainable. So from a sustainability standpoint, want to know a little bit more about what National Bison is really doing there. Yeah, absolutely. So we take a very holistic approach to management of bison uh, for in terms of sustainability. You know, this animal evolved on the North American landscape for over 200,000 years and really shaped the plains as they are today. So it's a, a keystone species, essentially. And like I said, it was never domesticated. So uh, we utilize those natural instincts to our advantage. So we don't brand bison. We don't dehorn bison. We don't artificially inseminate bison. We don't castrate bison. Um, you know, it's a very hands-off approach, but in turn, that's a very sustainable approach to raising this animal as it naturally grazed and operated before it was, you know, before the West was settled. And I saw a graphic not too long ago, you know, people always talk about cattle burps and farts and their emissions to be unladylike here, but, um, you know, then they compared it to how bison have been on the land since long before, you know, we actually started doing cattle operations and and things of that nature. So I just kind of want to pick your brain a little bit there on an emission standpoint, if that makes sense. That's a great question. You know, we we did do some research into uh, bison emissions at the university level. Uh, We had a couple students that focused on it and didn't get too far, unfortunately. However, we just opened up the Center of Excellence for Bison Studies at South Dakota State University last year, and that is on our wish list of things that we want to do more research on is the emissions from bison versus cattle, Uh, because as you mentioned there, historically, they were here and did not seem to add too many emissions that we know of, of course, uh, to the atmosphere. So I think the, the flip side of that is that, you know, through expanding bison production and grazing, uh, we are also growing carbon sequestration sinks. Uh, grasslands have proven to be a wonderful carbon capture tool. And as you graze bison and restore the prairies, you're going to regenerate that soil. You're going to regenerate those grasslands and they're going to capture more carbon. And Jim, earlier you mentioned how they're not domesticated, they're wild. Uh, and you know, centuries ago, many bison roamed the roamed around America, and now there's way less now. Can you kind of speak to how bison producers are kind of in part, you know, helping with the restoration of those populations, whether if they're just regular producers, tribal uh, people, everything like that? Yes, absolutely. So you're absolutely right. Uh, We say eat bison to restore bison. So by purchasing bison meat, you are providing economic incentive for these landowners to have more bison on their land and in in turn restoring the species. So just 150 years ago, we had less than a thousand head of bison in the world. And thanks to ranchers and conservationists and tribal groups working together, the population is now approximately 400,000 in North America. And that takes everybody at the table to, to participate. You know, we say bison conservation has is a stool with four legs. Commercial production, of course, is one leg. Tribal production is another leg. Uh, conservation is another leg. And the consumer is a very important leg. And to, to help restore the bison... Uh, as we continue to do so. So this might be a, a little bit of a silly question here, but if any of our audience members or, you know, whoever want to kind of get started up in doing some ranching of the, their own, is it fairly easy? What is that process like? 
It is, and a lot of people are intimidated by that, but they shouldn't be. You know, it's it's not too different from raising cattle or other similar livestock. Um, it may take a little bit more fencing, depending on your operation and where you're located, but cattle fencing can very easily be amended to bison fencing. Uh, same goes for handling facilities. You can get away largely with your cattle handling facilities, but you might have to get a bigger squeeze chute to, again, accommodate the bison size. Uh, our website is a wonderful resource, bisoncentral.com, where folks can go on there and learn how to raise bison. Okay. Well, Jim, thank you so much for joining us and chatting about bison today. It's certainly been a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Ashton. I appreciate it. Thanks again there to Jim for chatting with us at NAFB about bison. I Their marketing materials really pulled me in because I didn't think that bison would be such an interesting topic to talk about, but their marketing materials were fantastic. There was a fellow Texan at their booth that I obviously had to talk to. So that was pretty interesting getting to know a little bit more about their increasing popularity, about you know their processing facilities and really how they get stuff done. So it was a very interesting interview to say the least. It certainly sounded that way, Ashton. I am jealous that you guys missed out on that or that I missed out on that. I always like talking to uh, the bison group there at NAFB. And I don't know if you eat bison very regularly, Ashton, but I don't really because we just don't have it available here. But I find when I travel to other states out west, they typically have it on the menu and I love to get a good bison burger. I have never actually had a bison burger, but they had bison beef sticks there. And got to say, they were pretty tasty. They weren't just your average meat stick. Well, that sounds pretty good. Again, jealous I missed that. But folks, if you missed any Ag News Daily episodes this week, you can find us at agnewsdaily.com or follow along with us on social media throughout the weekend. We're always, we're always sharing cool stuff, tweeting, following, et cetera, et cetera. So give us a follow on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. Ashton, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.